0: So we are continuing on in our series in the book of Joshua, and we've been talking about this idea of courageous obedience, um, and I think, you know, I just want to remind everybody, so, so week one, we talked about how Joshua was told to be bold and to have courage, and, and really what we talked about was that he really is a precursor to Jesus, and that he is the one who is called to be bold and, and to be and courageous in the Lord, and, and we follow him into that, and we follow him by meditating on his word and looking at his promises, and we're going to look at some of those today as well. And then last week we looked at Rahab, this illustrious story about this, this, this prostitute who ultimately her story is redeemed by God, and she comes to understand the gospel and the fullness of God's love for her, and she's part of really part of Israel's story, and her, her bloodline ends up leading to Jesus. I mean, it's a pretty incredible story of restoration. And and today, we're going to be talking a little bit more about courageous obedience, and I want to be very clear from the outset that this is not something that we muster up on our own. You know, Pastor Adam really talked about how this is not something we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we just get bold and we get courageous, that really it's about obedience. It's about being faithful to what God has called us to, and to follow him in that. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, the background, when we come to this story today of Israel crossing the Jordan River uh, is pretty incredible. And I'm going to set the stage for this a little bit. The the people of Israel have this promise of this land that they're going to get to enter into across the Jordan, in a land called Canaan. This promise is 600 years old at this point. Like, how old is our country? 240 years at this point? Okay, so 360 years older than, than this country is, okay? Like, before the pilgrims, like go way back. And that's, that's how old this promise is to these people. And they've been wandering around in the desert now for 40 years. And if you remember why, because their forefathers had, had not trusted the Lord, that he would deliver them into this land. So God said, okay, this entire generation, you older folks, older than 20, you're all going to die off. And they, a younger generation comes up under them, and they wander around in the desert under the leadership of, of Moses, the greatest leader the world has ever seen outside of Christ. They're living in tents, okay, like if you can picture this, there's these like wool-like tents that they're living in, staked into the ground, picking them up, going all over the desert. They've got cattle with them and sheep and children and manna is still coming down out of the sky miraculously every day. God is feeding them. Okay, this is still all occurring. We think of this as this miracle that happened years before, but it was still occurring every day that this magic bread is basically showing up from God and feeding the people, crazy part of this story is that they're still carting around Joseph's bones, okay? This, this was crazy to me. I, never, I forget about this, that Joseph, 400 years earlier, okay, before Egypt had gone into slavery, said, someday, when we inherit this land that my great-great-grandfather Abraham told me about, I want you to bring my bones and I want you to bury him there. I came out of Egypt, maybe it was mummified, I don't know, but they're carting his bones all over the desert to bury him in the promised land this crazy story. And then we come to, they get up to the edge of the Jordan, and they're ready to go. Chapter one, Joshua tells them, get ready. Get prepared. And then we have this great moment where you think it's going to happen, and then we get into chapter two and we talk about Rahab. All right, so we talk about her for a little while, and then he comes back to chapter three and chapter four, which we're talking about today. And there's like five sermons worth of stuff in here, and I'm going to pack it in today. So We're going to blaze through this, hang on to your hats, all right? Like, we're going to go quick, pay attention, we're going to move through this bit. There's an incredible amount of stuff in here, a wealth of information and a wealth of of stuff from the Lord that I think he wants us to hear. And I think this is important for us. Sometimes as, as Christians, right, as Christ followers, we think, oh, that's a nice story for Israel. That's great. That's really cool that God did that miracle, and we read right over it. We're like, oh, that's cool, he parted the Red Sea, that's neat. Oh, look at the manna coming down. Oh, look, they crossed the Jordan. Like, spoiler alert, they crossed the Jordan, okay? Like, we'll get to that. But they crossed the Jordan. We look at this miracle and we don't think much of it. And we think, oh, that's for Israel. I would like to help us think about this in a new way, that these are our spiritual ancestors as well. These are our forerunners in faith. And we're called to remember this promise for us as well, which we'll get to at the end of the talk today. So just think about that with me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can take them out and, and look at Joshua chapter 3. And I'm going to read this, and I'm going to break and talk about things along the way. So if you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. You can just listen to the story, um, but it's pretty incredible. So listen to what uh, it says here. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shatim and went to the Jordan, to the river, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders uh, to the people. They said, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, many of you have heard about this. Some of you don't know about this. The Ark of the Covenant was this giant wooden box that God told Moses to build. And It has these, these angels, these golden angels on top of it. And they, it symbolizes God's presence with the people. And inside of the Ark at this point is, is Aaron's staff that had budded and grew almonds, which is another crazy story from earlier in the Bible. And they put that in there. And they put in there the covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments of God written on stone. They put these stones in there. And Joshua, God tells Joshua to tell the people, the ark is going to go before you into the river. And he says, keep a distance of, of 3,000 feet. Okay, for perspective, for those of you who know the area, 3,000 feet from here would be the TD Bank at the end of Stefco. Like, that's how far that is. And this is a good distance here in between them and the ark. And he says they do that so they'll see it. So that they will see this thing going down to the river because they've never been this way before. I think this is ultimately God's grace for the people, because the ark goes first, and they get to stand back and watch what happens at first. God knows that these are doubters, and he says, I'll go first. You watch me at a distance, you watch what happens, and then you'll be emboldened to go down and follow me. So read on, look at uh, verse 5. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Now, at this point, Joshua has been commissioned by God, like in front of the cloud, in front of the tent of meeting, by Moses. Moses lays his hands on him, commissions Joshua to lead the people. And now God's telling Joshua, I'm going to do this so that the people know that I'm with you like I was with Moses. Verse 8, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. I love that. They had to have been excited about this, right? Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you, and he lists all the people that the previous generation had been scared of, all right? He says, God's going to drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, then this is a weird verse here. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And then he moves on. But I think that points back to something that happened in Deuteronomy 27. Moses actually prophesied that this was going to happen. And he said, when you cross the Jordan, take up... Take up stones and make the covenant on them again. Write it down for the people again. So I think Joshua kind of knows there's something that's going to happen here that we should be aware of. So he writes that, and he says this, and then he moves on. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. There is so much in this first section, okay? The thing I want to I drill down on is the courageous obedience that we see here. The courageous obedience we see in, in Joshua, in the people, and in the priests. Okay, first look at Joshua, right? Joshua, what does he do? He listens to God. God commissions him and says, you're going to be the leader, I'm going to do this, and he listens to him. And on faith, he obeys. And he says, I believe that God's going to do this. So he goes and he starts instructing the people about what to do. It takes a considerable amount of faith to do that. Now, if you think about it, there really was no pressure for him to cross the river outside of the promise of God. Now, think back to Moses. When Moses crossed the Red Sea with the people, what was happening? They were being chased. They were scared for their lives. They thought they were going to die. So it was either we go into the water or we deal with these guys. So he's forced. Like he's not, he has no options And he goes to God, and God says, Why are you coming to me? Raise up your staff, part the water. And Moses parts the water, and the people cross. He had no choice. But Joshua, think about it. They've been wandering around for 40 years. What's a couple more weeks? Right? Maybe we should go north and go around the end of the river. We'll go up and around, and we'll we'll take the easier way around. We've got manna. We've got food every day we're being supplied for. The tents are already nailed down. Like, eh, maybe we can wait. So there's no pressure for him to do this, but he trusts the word of the Lord. He trusts God's promise to him and God's covenant to him and says, Okay, I'll do it. I will go. I I, I will be obedient in this. And in that is his courage. In that is this act of courage. And furthermore, we see in verse 7, really, he believes that God's going to validate him. He believes God's promise that he's going to validate Joshua as the people's leader. As the one who's going to help lead them across So he tells the people to get ready, to go to the river, and he's betting everything on this. He's staking everything on this. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus in this. Jesus going into the garden, knowing what's coming, knowing that he's getting ready to cross over what is certain death, and believing that God is going to validate him. Believing that God is going to justify him. Oftentimes we forget about the humanity of Jesus, but it took courageous obedience and faith on his part to believe that his father had a plan, to believe that it was going to be okay, to believe that even if he died, that God would bring him back. Joshua's an incredible example of Christ-like faith. So look on at the people, right? What are the people told to do? Told to consecrate themselves, right? This is a weird verse in the middle of this thing, where Joshua's getting ready, he's getting the people ready, and he says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow God's going to do this amazing thing among you. Now, if you look up the word consecrate, if you study this, if you look into it, really what it means is to set apart. It's linked to this idea of holiness. Now, oftentimes what happens when we hear the word holiness, what do we think? Sinlessness. Perfection. When really it's, it's more closely tied to being set apart, to being made different, so when Joshua tells the people, okay, we're going to cross this river, but you need to consecrate yourselves because something crazy is going to happen tomorrow. Something out of the ordinary is going to happen. He's not saying be sinless. He's saying set yourselves apart for this. You are under the promise of God. You are under a covenant. Set yourselves apart and be prepared for this to happen tomorrow. So the, I try to think of like examples of what this would look like. This would be like getting ready to go to a christmas party for your workplace. Okay? Like you work every day with these people, 5 6 days a week, like you're out, you know, working with equipment or you're 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 at the office or you're a teacher or whatever it is, right? You're doing your normal job. When you go to the christmas party, it's totally different than anything else you normally do. And you're not going to show up in your normal workwear. Like you're going to set yourself apart. You're going to do something different than you have before because this is a different kind of day, right? Or like a wedding, right? You don't show up to your wedding wearing your Eagles jersey, most likely. Like, you should. this is a different kind of day. You show up in a tux. Like, you are ready to go. This is a different kind of day. It's set apart. It reminded me of church. Like, when we gather, when I say church, I mean the service at this point. When we gather on a weekly basis, it's a set apart day. God says set apart the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Keep it separate. Because it's different than every other day of the week, right? If we do six days. We work. We toil. We strive. We run around. We do these things. Day 7 or the first day of the week, whatever you look at it, this is the day of the Lord. We set it apart and it's different. So Joshua's telling the people and they actually obey this time. We're going to set ourselves apart to this. We're going to be ready to see God do this miracle. We want to be set apart. They too could have stayed right where they were. But here's the great part. The previous generation said, "We don't really believe this." And they didn't set themselves apart. Yet this generation, through the grace of God, has the faith and takes the courageous obedience and the obedience step to set themselves apart and to be ready for it. Now, I might be down in the weeds in this, um, but I found it fascinating when you think about the Jordan River. This is a place of consecrated, this is a consecrated area. This is a, part, a place that is set apart. And people go to the Jordan and they set themselves apart, Right? If you think about all of the things that have transpired in this river in the history of Israel, it's incredible. It is a different place. And go all the way up through the New Testament. Where do we see John the Baptist baptizing people? In the Jordan. This is a place where people come and they consecrate themselves. They set themselves apart. And they say, I'm not going to live for my kingdom anymore. This is repentance, right? I'm not going to live for my kingdom anymore. I'm going to live for God's kingdom. I want to live for what He's calling me to, which is exactly. What the people are doing here, they're setting themselves apart from their own kingdom and saying, I want God's kingdom instead. And it's exactly what we see Jesus do, right? You ever thought about Jesus' baptism? Like, he's not sinful. So does he need to go and be purified? No, he says he does it to fulfill all righteousness. He's setting himself apart to God's kingdom. He's consecrating himself. He is our example of what consecration looks like, setting ourselves apart So lastly, think about the priests and their courageous obedience. They're going to be the first ones in, right? Joshua's like, all right, you're going to take up the ark, and you're going to go. Like, I would have been like, I don't know. I don't know about this. Yet, they have faith, and they believe that they are supposed to go and model this for the rest of Israel. And they believe God. They believe what God's going to do, and they model it for their brothers and sisters in the Lord, and they go and they stand in the gap for the people, right? They're the first ones carrying the ark into the river. And like I said, spoiler alert, they cross. It happens. The miracle happens. But they're the first ones in and they stand in the gap. Do you see Jesus in this? He carries God's presence and he brings us through through the river, through death, with him to the other side, to the promised land. Of life with him now and for eternity. You see, they stood in the gap and so does the Lord. That is courageous obedience. And it's obedience that is courageous, remember, to follow the Lord and have faith in him. So read on. Look at verse 15 of this chapter. So he builds up this whole thing, right? The author does. And we're getting ready, we're getting ready. And then verse 15 he says, Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. It's just this little fact maybe you should know about. This is like March-April time period. This is the month of Passover the snow is melting in the upper elevations, so it's picking up you know, water coming into the river. It's a little bit more rainy this season, so there's water coming in. So this thing is, is not just the, the trickle of water that it is today, okay? This is a wide river at this point. I happen to, like, I think I saw it on YouTube. I Googled Jordan River flooding. It's crazy. Like, go home and look it up. Not right now. Go home, look it up. It's nuts. This is a raging body of water coming down, And it's at flood stage, so it could be 200 yards wide. There's places where it's a mile wide. And this is crazy. He's saying, so now it's at flood stage, just highlighting the drama of this. So read on. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan, and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, this is, it was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho, meaning across from the city Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground." Something I want to highlight here is, is the word ark is used 16 times in chapters 3 and 4. Like, the ark is the star of this story. And there's a reason that the author wrote it the way that he, that he did, going over and over again. The ark did this. The ark did this. The priest carried the ark. This is all about God's faithfulness. These two chapters are all about the promise of God and his faithfulness to fulfill it. The promise of God to see us through and validate himself and us in the process. I find it amazing that, that the place that, that this, this deadly water was stopped back to was Adam. I think there's, some, there's, there's something in that. There's an image in that for us. It's been proven, and they've seen it over and over again in, in history, that, that this river at different times has completely stopped. That in history there's been landslides, there's been earthquakes that have caused the river to stop, sometimes for a little bit of time. In 1927 it was for like 20 hours that the water back upstream stops. So whether God works through an earthquake or a landslide or what, it doesn't matter. He said it would happen, and it did, because God oversees all of nature. The highlight here is the ark. And again, this has the gospel written all over it, that the presence of God goes first before us, that God himself goes before us into this place of certain death where if you and I walked through it on our own, we would die, he goes first. And he stands in the middle, in the gap, for us. And we get to walk by right in front of him. And he comes out the other side and delivers us into the promised land. This is Jesus all over this. And what he does for us in calling us through death, into life, through him. Ultimately, into the promised land. Look at, look at verse, uh, I think it's verse 7 again in chapter 3. This verse where God says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. If you read the story of the Exodus, okay, when Moses is bringing the people out of Egypt, after they get through the Red Sea, there's a verse that says, and Moses was with God, basically, and the people knew it. And God was with Moses, and the people knew it. And they learned to trust him, implicitly, except they didn't because then they would go and they would doubt him immediately, right? But God was with Moses. Moses was with God, and it validated his leadership and his faith in God, his courageous obedience. And the Lord tells Joshua, I'm going to do the same exact thing. There is such a history of this in Scripture. Think about this. Noah looked like a fool for what he was doing. He looked ridiculous for building this giant boat in the land that had not seen rain like this. And yes, he, he does it, and he's validated. Through the water, he becomes out validated on the other side by God for his obedience. We come to Moses, as like we talked about. We, we look at Joshua in this situation. Joshua's leadership is validated. His faith in God is validated on the other side of this. You ever read the story of Elijah passing on his, his prophetic spirit to Elisha, his servant? This is a crazy story. Right right at the end of Elijah's career, Elijah was a little bit of a nutty prophet. He was chased all over by kings and queens to take his life. He lived out alone. He was kind of nuts. But he spoke the word of God, and at the end of his career, he says, the Lord's calling me, and he crosses the Jordan. He parts it, and he walks across to the other side. And Elisha says, I want to go with you. And Elisha goes with him across And on the other side, Elijah Elijah asks Elisha, "What, what can I do for you? And he says, I want your spirit. I want to be able to do this too. And he says, well, if you see me when I go to the Father, then you'll have this. And he sees Elijah get carted off by this chariot of fire, and Elijah's cloak falls to the ground. I don't know if Elijah grabbed it. I don't know what happens. But Elijah ends up with this cloak of his predecessor. And he walks back to the Jordan River, And he touches the water, and it parts. And he walks through. And the prophets that see this happen validate his prophetic power. They realize now, okay, the spirit is on this man too. So you have Elijah, the predecessor to Elisha. If John the Baptist is the spirit of Elijah, right? Do you see the correlation to Jesus in this? This this river regularly validates people. What happens to Elijah or John the Baptist? He goes into the river... Right? and he's announcing that the kingdom is coming. He's announcing that the Spirit of God is going to come, and he's going to form a kingdom on earth, and he's calling for consecration and repentance to, for people. And Jesus comes, and he goes into the river, and what happens? The, the clouds part, and the voice of God comes and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see the validation that happens in this river over and over and over again, leading up to our Savior, Jesus it's incredible. Joshua, again, the predecessor to Christ in so many ways. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay, look at verse chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you, and to put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder. So picture this. The ark is still standing in the middle of the river. All right? it's, it's dry enough that they can walk across it. And Joshua says, Okay, go back and get these twelve big stones, big enough that you have to put them on your shoulder and carry them out of the river. And he says... In verse 6, these are going to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Uh, when When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp. So now they're setting up this other camp, right, on the other side now, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood, right? So he grabs these stones from where the Ark was, and they are there to this day. So he sets up this memorial for the people. Verse 10, Now the priest who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. Again, Moses was a prophet. He told him that this was going to happen. The people hurried over. Like, I love that he writes that. The people hurried over. Like, they were still a little bit panicky. Like, okay, this is, this is crazy. This is actually happening. So they're hustling to get across here, right? Uh, so our uh, Lord and the priest came over the other side while the people watched. Okay, so the people watch as the, as the priests come back up out of the river. In verse 12 and 13, it says that there were 40,000 of this, these other tribes that fought for, for Israel who were actually going to stay on the side they had come from. But God tells Moses, tell the people, like, you're going to have to to fight on your behalf, and Joshua has them fight on behalf of the Israelites here to go across. Anyway, verse 14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So again, he's just wrapping up the story here. So Joshua commands the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And the priest came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. I love this. Beforehand, the Israelites are up on the embankment and they watch the ark go in and they watch the water stop. They come up out of the other side and they're looking back now at the priest carrying the ark and they get to watch the water come back down the river. They get to see God at work over and over again. Um, So verse 19, on the 10th day of the first month, okay, this is uh, Passover, all right, this is Passover, on the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. So now they're moving towards this city of Jericho, which we'll read about in a couple chapters. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. Listen to what he says to the Israelites. In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. Listen to why he did this. God did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You might always revere him and his power. Remember, Rahab was saying that, we've heard about you, and their hearts were melting. And you see that happen in Jericho, that God completely destroys it because of his power. These people are afraid now because they hear this. They see this happen with these Israelites. I'm sure there were others from Jericho around the area that saw this go down. And they go back, and people are freaking out about the power of this nation, the power of their God, and what he's doing And Joshua is telling the people, you're going to set up this stone memorial to remember this. To remember what God has done for you. The point of all of this, I believe the point of this whole chapter, is that God is faithful. That God fulfills his word to us. And when he calls us to something, he will see it through. But we're also called to remember this. We're called to revere God's power. And to constantly look back on it and remember all that he's done. And it becomes a display to the world around us of God's power as well. You know, like, I think what it says is that if God God did this for us, what can he do? Right? If he did this amazing thing in our lives, what can he do? If he called us to this and he saw it through, why wouldn't he do it for the rest of what he's calling me to? And it reminded me... It reminded me of uh, Romans 8.28. It's a verse that that Christians claim all the time, rightly so. Just listen to what Paul says. and We'll get back to this idea of this memorial. Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Right? Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God predestined us and called us, what should we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul is looking back to Jesus' crucifixion, to Jesus' death and resurrection, and saying, if God didn't spare Jesus, what won't he do for you? He's looking back. He is setting up a memorial saying, what can't we expect from God? I don't mean material things or like some rich, blessed life. I mean the things that God calls us to, the things that he predestines us to, the things that he asks us to walk in. And he's saying, "If if God gave up his own son on your behalf... What wouldn't he do that he calls you to, to help you do it? He's remembering Jesus, and he's remembering what he calls us to. So one of the really practical takeaways from this story is what are the rocks that you've set up in your life? You know, these, those cairns, you know, that where you place these rocks on top of each other? Like What are the things that you look back on in your life and you say, God worked right there? And that was incredible, and it gives me the courage to keep going. I will continue to obey and be faithful because of what I've seen God do. And sometimes there's long stretches in between these big things that we get to see in our lives. I know for me personally, I have to look back sometimes years and say, I remember when God provided for us in this way. I know that he'll do it now, 20 years later. Right? So we have to do this for ourselves to remind us of what God has done in our lives. Jess and I know a family who... The husband um, was a heavy equipment operator, and they were, they were clearing a lot one day, and these machines are huge, and they basically knocked over a tree like root ball and all. Pfft, picked this thing up out of the ground, this huge tree and and if you' ever seen one of these giant excavators, basically my friend Kenny it was his dad Ken, was driving this excavator, and he basically grabbed the tree like this under the bucket. Okay, and, and wedged it in between the bucket and picked it up. Jesse, you've maybe you've seen this done. He picks this thing up and turns like this with the tree. And as he's turning, it slipped out and landed on Kenny, completely crushing him right across his chest. And my brother was there and said it was, it's the scariest thing he's ever seen because Kenny was out immediately and and blood everywhere, broken ribs, thigh like head cracked like I mean this guy was destroyed. Church started praying immediately. They were like, He's gonna die. There's no way he lives through this. <clears throat> but after months and months of prayer, that family saw miracle after miracle of God healing him piece by piece by piece. And I'll tell you what, he's pretty much the same guy today that he was a couple years ago. Like it's insane to see what God did in him. So God is a miracle worker, right? So his wife in the midst of all of this, started writing down the little miracles that she was seeing on rocks. To remember God's provision for them, God's care for them, so they can look back on it and say, do you remember when God did this in Kenny's life? Do you remember this miracle that happened? Now, granted, you're probably not going to be hit by a tree from an excavator. okay? Like That's probably not going to be what happens in your life. But God does things in our lives, right? Look for it. Pray for it. Remember it. Write it down. If you have children, tell them about it. Remind them. This is why mom and dad are making this decision, because we've seen God do this in the past. Right? You're a student, maybe you don't have kids yet. Okay, remember what God has done in your life to get you to where you are right now. Say, okay, he's led me to this point. He's brought me from here. He's done this for me. He's carried me through this. Because the point of this is that God is faithful, and that he will do what he calls us to, and he will equip us to do it. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Continue to be obedient, and in that you are courageous. So what? So what does all this mean for us today? This was a promise for Israel. Like, good for them. You know, like this this promise came true for them. That's really cool. If you're a Christ follower, you too are under a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. They waited 600 years for this to come to fruition. How long have we been waiting for the Lord to come back, right? 2,000 years at this point. So we too are under a promise that is yet to fully be fulfilled. So our call is to look to our brothers and sisters who went through this all these years ago to see that God is faithful, He carried them through. And he will come through on his promise for Christ to return, to set up a, a, a meeting of heaven and earth when, when the earth is remade and we get to live in the completed promised land. You know, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that this rest is still to come. That these folks really didn't find it yet. It was to be found in Jesus and in someday in the future kingdom. So we don't, we, we have hope, right? We have hope even though we don't see it yet because of what we've seen already. And I don't know what God's called you to in this life. I don't know, you know, what, what struggles you're going through. You know, I know for, for Jess and I, we, we moved up here, and, like, that's not been the easiest thing in the world, but we can look back and say that God called us to it, and he will continue to deliver us. He will continue to walk with us through it. So I don't know if it's a new job, if it's a, if it's a relationship that you need to reconcile, if it's, you know, a baby on the way. Like, there's all these things in our church family, right, that God calls us to, And he will continue to walk with us through it and ultimately into the promised land with Jesus someday. We can have hope because he's faithful.